I'm doing a bit of a David Lee tonight for those of you that have been here on Wednesday nights and showing you a couple of um, other people's um, imaginary uh, ideas about what they think it would have looked like uh, as Jesus travelled into Jerusalem. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at this story that's known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to do it uh, by th- in three different ways. We're going to set the scene, we're going to find out what Jesus was doing, and then we're going to ask ourselves what we can learn from this. So if uh, second one, that's it. Setting the scene, what Jesus was doing, what on earth he was doing traveling in like this, and what on earth has that got to do with us? Okay, so... We've got this Messiah. This is a story about the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah. But for us in modern day Britain, there's not really many people that we come across who claim to be the anointed one. This idea of Messiah, if we have the next slide up. Next slide. Thank you. Mashiach, the anointed one. There's not really many people that we come across who claim to be the Messiah. But if you have a look at the next slide... Please. Thank you. We've got here for you a selection of people who in more recent times have actually claimed to be the Messiah. Some of you might remember that um, uh, chap, I can't remember his name now, but he he was in the media a lot, not very long ago, uh, claiming that he was the son of God. And then there's every so often you get people like the, the ones that used to do yoga and bounce around the place and all sorts of other people. And the, all these people have actually claimed and other people have claimed about them that they were the Messiah. Um, here we've even got old Mabel there, haven't we? Mabel from Bedford. Um, I guess it takes all sorts. But... While this might not, this idea of Messiah, Mashiach, might not be something that we talk about much, expectations about coming of the Messiah was a really hot topic in Palestine and part of the background of our story today. We'll come back to that in a bit. But first, we're going to set the scene in other ways. The story of the triumphal entry is one of a few incidents in Jesus' life which appears in all four gospel accounts. And as we read it, we find ourselves in the spring of the year, the time of the great Passover feast in Jerusalem. And during the Jewish month of Nisan, that's kind of early April in our calendar, scholars tell us it was probably in AD 33 or maybe AD 30. And we find ourselves being there when there's all sorts of things going on. Passover festival, it had been really jam-packed. And uh, to imagine the numbers of people, you might want to imagine something like Glastonbury and times it by two, or maybe being in a city when there's a major sporting event going on, and again, doubling the numbers of people in a stadium. Just think huge numbers of people there, everywhere. And people have had temporary shelters and temporary tents and accommodation and things. During um, Jesus' day, Jerusalem had a population of around about 25,000 people. So if you can imagine maybe one and a half times the size of Aldridge, something like that. But the estimates of the size of the population at Passover time could range from 180,000 on the low end to somewhere like 3 million on the high end. It was super busy, this one city uh, with all these people that had come into it. It was the gathering of universal Israel. People would come together to celebrate, to party, to remember the birth, that birth night of the nation and of its exodus that when it came away from centuries of slavery. And everyone would be heading up to worship in the awesome temple. National and religious feelings were going to be stirred. 
And people thought back to where they'd come from. But they also thought ahead to when this Messiah person was going to come and sort it all out with the Romans, maybe, and sort it all out and, and just bring in that whole new messianic era. But there's more to it than this. In the previous few weeks, if we look back and compare the stories in the other Gospels as well, we find that there's all sorts of things have been happening in Jesus's life and among the people around him. Um, he performed a number of amazing miracles, which has attracted the crowds, like Bartimaeus, and there was another blind man as well. They were given their sight in Jericho. And then, most spectacularly of all, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. So people were kind of excited and a bit confused, wondering, expectant, all wrapped up into one. Not only because it was Passover time, but because they knew something was happening, something unusual. And they never quite knew what Jesus was going to get up to next. You see, Jerusalem was the destination to which Jesus had been heading for some time. And ever since the transfiguration, you know, when he appeared on the mountain to, with Moses and Elijah, he'd been talking to his disciples about going to Jerusalem. He'd been slowly working his way there. But he'd been saying about how it would be where he was put to death as well. He knew who he was. He knew what was going to happen. But not everyone was connecting things up yet. But we do know that Israel, generally speaking, was waiting for a Messiah figure, someone who would emerge and transform everything. <coughs> they knew that the prophets had said that it would be in Jerusalem, that the expected Messiah would be enthroned as king. So for those who've been watching Jesus and listening closely to him over the last three years, some are wondering, could this be the one? Could this be the person who was going to suddenly... Like it was going to become really obvious that they were this new king. They were going to be the Messiah that they longed for. I wonder what it was that the Jews were expecting in the Messiah figure. Any Messiah figure. Um, who, I wonder what they thought it was going to be like. Well, it's hard to know exactly, but down the years, they'd come to believe all sorts of stuff which was deeply ingrained in their culture and religious life. And they suggested uh, the things on the next PowerPoint. If you just have a quick nose. So he's going to be this key prophet. He was going to be a king. He was going to turn up suddenly in Bethlehem. But there was like whole loads of stuff. You know, so, some stuff really practical. and some, some stuff which sounds really futuristic. You know, he's going to wrap up time and, and uh, bring material and spiritual happiness to everyone. Sort of rule the world. How on earth was that going to be? So they had all these ideas. And I guess some people were thinking, okay, so we've got a bloke on a donkey and we've got all this. Maybe there are connections, though. You see, Jesus, through his actions, he was deliberately and provocatively claiming to be some of this stuff. He was claiming by riding in on that donkey. He was claiming to be somebody who would reestablish the throne of David. His actions are like a living parable. They were acted out to disclose his true identity, spreading the word about who he really is. So he'd done lots of talking, done lots of miracles, and he'd lived around the disciples and the crowds. And even then, many of them, to be honest, they were still fairly confused. But now here he was, riding in Jerusalem in such a way that everyone awaiting the Messiah could understand what he was implying. This triumphal entry shows that Jesus identified himself with the shepherd king in the Old Testament, Zechariah. 
the one who would ride into the capital city and receive the worship and praise of the people. No longer does he tell his disciples to be quiet. He says, no, it's okay. They can, they can keep praising me. Um, the people can keep praising me. By doing this, Jesus was fully declaring to the people that he really was their king and the Messiah. And in spreading their cloaks in front of him, they were showing that they recognised this. They recognised him as royalty and as the one that they'd been waiting for. They even used bits of Psalm 118, which contained some great elements of prophecy and attributed the glory of the coming king to this very Jesus. Some were certainly getting the hints about who he was. And for those who were really thinking, and then who knew the, <coughs> excuse me, the Torah, <coughs> they would have been pushed into starting to piece things together. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Ugh. You see, here was a guy who'd been preceded by uh, a prophet. This guy was a descendant of David, <coughs> and he had turned up suddenly being born in Bethlehem. Mysterious things has happened about his birth, <coughs> around his birth and his childhood. And he'd been, he'd been, um, I've lost my voice. <coughs> he'd been acting like the prophets of old. He'd been calling people to repentance. He'd been baptising people and healing them. So it's not surprising that people were starting to wonder and talk among themselves. Perhaps about a revolution, perhaps something was going to happen. And, you know, even the Pharisees. They recognised what he was saying. They, they recognised that it was to do with the Messiah, but they just weren't sure that they liked it being him. Because the Messiah wouldn't be like Jesus, would he? We'd be more like them or us, wouldn't he? <coughs> the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles long. And at this stage in the story, Jesus had almost reached his goal and his journey's end in Jerusalem. It's all been building up towards this. And if we look at his entry into Jerusalem, it was no sudden, <coughs> impulsive action. He even used the words, the Lord needs it, as a kind of password to the people he got the cult from. But it's more than just a pre-planned donkey ride. It was highly symbolic how he was to do it. Riding on a donkey was an act of glorious defiance and of amazing courage. You see, by the time this the time they got there, really, there was probably a price on Jesus' head. And it would have been completely understandable if he did slipped in through a back gate. But Jesus entered in such a way as to take centre stage, all eyes on him. Through his actions, he was deliberately claiming to be king, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And while we might think that he just used an untamed silly little donkey, those donkeys in Palestine were not considered like silly old donkeys at this time. Kings used to ride them in peacetime. So it was a symbol that he was actually a king, but of love and peace, not a, a wartime hero. We might say, okay, in the middle of all this that she's been going on about, uh, all these expectations of Messiah, what on earth has that got to do with us today? What can we learn from it? <coughs> well, church down the ages has seen this whole dramatic journey as both a fulfilment of prophecy and a recognition of Jesus' role, but also a preparation for all the death and resurrection events that were coming up in the next week. 
but making it even more personal. This story also reminds us of the importance of recognising Jesus as the king he is, not necessarily as the king we would like him to be. You see, they had lots of ideas about what Jesus or the Messiah would be, and and many of those are prophesied in the Old Testament, but they would have had their own interpretation of that. So they would have, you know, some of them would have thought he was going to be a revolutionary. Some of them would have have thought he'd be more like a proper royal. Okay, all sorts of ideas. But we're like that with Jesus, and we have our own ideas about what we expect him to be. wonder what your expectations are like. In Jesus, we have a God. We have God who chooses to come among us. The story of a king who came as a lowly servant on a donkey, not to conquer by force as earthly kings do, but by love and grace and mercy. His is not a kingdom of military armies and splendour, but of humility and servanthood. But there's even more to the story than this. As we travel our Christian journey, whether we're 15 or 85, we need to ask ourselves, if we're going to be Christians as long as Jesus fulfills our hopes and desires, are we going to sing along the road with a crowd as they sing the worship songs while stuff's going well, but only as long as it's going well and Jesus is doing kind of what we want? Testimonies last week were really key in showing us that actually Jesus takes us on some pretty tough journeys. And if we follow the disciples' story, following Jesus at this point in their lives led them to a radically different future than anything that they could have ever expected. Of course, Jesus answers prayers, and sometimes the answers are those that we like. But when life's not easy, are we still going to follow? Those disciples were still working it all out. And many of us here are working it all out. What does it mean to really be a Christian in 2017? There's a big challenge about our motives. Are we ready to spread our cloaks on the road and join in the public parade, like going to respectable church on Sunday evenings or because it's Easter, but then we'll go home and do our own thing? Or are we ready to follow Jesus, whatever it takes? And if following him takes us into trouble or controversy, or really tough times. Would we die for our faith if it really came to that? If any of you have read Miriam's um, latest newsletter from Malaysia, she'll tell you very much about how standing for Jesus in a Muslim society has got a really different cost to the one that most of us will ever have to face. God is genuinely good, and there are many wonderful benefits of being Christians. But as we become more experienced in our faith, we all encounter situations in which God doesn't seem to fulfil all our expectations. When that happens, the temptation is often to bail out of what the Christian faith teaches and to do things our own way. When life doesn't make sense or just hurts too much, it's easy to want to come up with our own theology or to stop believing in God as supernatural. It's easy to slowly, inconspicuously drop back from coming to church, from living the life, from putting our full trust in him. It's easy to say, well, it just shouldn't be like this. You know, being a Christian, it's going to be, you know, mostly okay, isn't it? And it's easy to settle for being a bit religious or just joining in a church as a community activity. But tough though life sometimes is, maybe, just maybe, If we think of just following Jesus when it's comfortable, we've got our perspective all wrong. Maybe in our individualistic, instant consumer society, we tend to want to tell God how things should be done, when and where and with whom. 
and then we sulk or have a paddy or hide away if it doesn't quite happen like we want it to. But you know, Jesus is Lord. He's a gracious, good, loving Lord. But he's not under no obligation to live up to our expectations. He does and will often astound us with all he does and lead us into a life which offers far more than we can ever have imagined. But he'll take us by a route where we have to learn to trust him. Not as one thing among many, but as our God. And we, we are called to be disciples, okay? We're not called to just do a nice Jesus thing. We're called to be learners and followers. The idea is about learning and trusting him. And trusting that we can meet with God in all the varied circumstances of life and death. And he can take us whichever way he chooses because he knows what's best. And we are asked to simply put our hand into his and follow. It's not always about knowing everything or even understanding everything in advance or liking it. I'm on an interesting journey that some of you know about and you'll probably find out more about in weeks to come. But I was getting really fed up the other day and a friend sent me the following. It's the words to a song and it says, Have you heard God's voice? Has your heart been stirred? Are you still prepared to follow? Have you made the choice to remain and serve, though the way is tough and narrow? Will you walk the path that will cost you much and embrace the pain and sorrow? Will you trust in one who entrusts to you the disciples of tomorrow? Will you use your voice? Will you not sit down when the multitudes are silent? Will you make a choice to stand your ground, even if the crowds are turning violent? In your city streets, will you be God's heart? Will you listen to the voiceless? Will you stop and eat with people? And when friendship starts, will you share your faith with the faithless? Will you watch the news with the eyes of faith and believe it could be different? Will you share your views using words of grace? Will you leave a thoughtful imprint? Will you walk the path that will cost you much and, if necessary, embrace the pain and sorrow? Will you trust in one who entrusts to you the disciples of tomorrow? Because if we're Christians, we are called to make disciples. You know? We're called to first recognise Jesus, okay, more than even just a Messiah. Okay? To recognise him as Lord and then to follow him. And to live for him and encourage others to follow him. Even when it gets tough. That's why lots of people drop out. But it's a choice. So tonight the challenge is about whether or not we're prepared to trust Jesus as our Lord for the next chapter. And this tray here, uh, I've got a load of stones. Uh, Most of them have got something written on them. Something like trusting God. And what I'd like to do is encourage you, if you can have the next slide up, please. And the next one. I want you to have a think about something in your life at the moment. I don't mind how old you are. There will be something which you find it a little bit harder than other things to trust God about. It could be cancer. It could be loneliness. It could be church. Studies. 
all sorts of things. But whatever it is, I want to challenge you that you'll take a couple of minutes now to say, okay, God, this is a journey we're on together. Um, and I trust you as my Lord in this thing in the next chapter. And that next chapter might be getting through tomorrow. Or it might be something that's going to happen this week or in the next month or the next year or exams in the summer, whatever it is. Okay, but you'll know what it is that you find hard. So take a couple of minutes to think about it. And then maybe you want to stand or kneel or maybe you want to come and get a stone and just take a stone away with you, which says, I trust God or trust God for this thing. And only you and God will know what that thing is. The only thing I'd say is probably don't put it in a white shirt pocket because it might the pen might come off. Um, but um, stick it in your pocket, on your windowsill, by your computer, as a reminder over the next couple of days um, that you're going to trust God in this next chapter. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to do that. It's not a big emotional appeal, but it's a choice that you are saying, um, okay, I want to choose to follow God in the next chapter, in the next day. I'm going to trust him as not only my Messiah in the background, but as my Lord and King in this moment. Stones are here. If you can have a little bit of um, piano or something, that would be really good uh, just in the background. But there's nobody here this doesn't touch, so I challenge you to make a choice. Thank you. If you don't know the Lord, it may be that you, you want to choose to come under his kingship in your life anyway and if you want to come to the front we'd be really delighted to pray for you um, and pray that as you commit yourself um, to God for this next season and for the rest of your life we'd love to do that. I'll leave the stones here and if afterwards uh, while we're having coffee or before you sneak off if you just want to sneak one take it with you that's well, <coughs> that's fine. Not everybody likes doing things in front of other people. That's fine. Let's just pray for a minute. Lord, I ask that you would uh, take my muddled and stumbling words and, uh, and that you would encourage people uh, and that you would help them to trust you. Lord, whatever it is that they are thinking of, um, I pray that you will come really close to them and help them to follow you, whatever the journey is going to involve. In Jesus' name. Amen. So now as we round up, we, we've looked together at um, the setting, including expectations around the Messiah. We looked at the way that Jesus went public with who he was <clears throat> and allowed the people to worship him. <clears throat> and then we spoke of the need to trust him for the next chapter. But there's really quickly just a little bit just at the end, which we haven't mentioned yet. And it's where we find Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. As you come down the Mount of Olives, there's a magnificent view of Jerusalem uh, with the whole city laying out below. And Jesus had stopped at this point and he was looking down at turning the road and he started to cry because he knew what was going to happen, just like he knows what's going to happen in our lives. He knew what was going to happen to that city. The Jews, you see, were even then embarking upon a career of political manoeuvre and intrigue, which ended in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
When the city was ransacked, it's a bit like some of the cities we see on the news in Syria, they were so devastated that they actually took a plough through the middle of Jerusalem. Like, it was like an open field. It was everything had just completely devastated. The tragedy was that if only they had abandoned their dreams and taken the way of Christ, it need never have happened. Jesus weeps when he sees the needless pain and suffering that we go through. And we all go through other stuff that we can't help, but sometimes we choose, and we choose stuff which hurts us. People get mixed up and messed up when they don't turn to him sometimes. Life's tough, but it's generally far tougher when we don't let God get involved. And he weeps when we choose to exclude him from parts of our lives which we hold back just so that we can feel like we're in control. I wonder if Jesus was looking down over Aldridge tonight and at us here, at the people who have taken stones and the people that haven't, at the people who've gone, yeah, Lord, I need to to remember your Lord in this as well and the ones that have refused to do that. I wonder what Jesus would be weeping at tonight. What areas don't we let him be king in? Perhaps in wider society, in our church, in my life. I think it's important that that we do business with God when we come to pray in a minute. And that we actually go, okay, God, okay, I've taken a stone for that because I can trust you in that. But I really need help trusting you for this as well. Come back, get another stone if you need to. In uh, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, submit to him, acknowledge him, make him your Lord, and he will make your path straight. So let's just take a minute to pray now together that we will humble ourselves enough to let God be more than, well, let God be God. Can I have that last slide up for me? To let God be more than just a lifestyle accessory. Okay, This isn't a nice religious thing that we do because we can't be bothered to find anything else to do on a Sunday night. Okay, It's hard, uh, but it's good and it's highly recommendable. And uh, let's just really ask God to be God in our lives. Chris.